And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I am Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. What are we reading this week, Harmony? We're reading a poem that you picked, and it is called The Madness Vase slash The Nutritionist by Andrea Gibson. So it's called her two different things because this poem was originally published... I don't know, a while ago, probably more than a decade ago under the name The Madness Face. And then Gibson, there's like a ton of iterations of this poem, but there's longer versions of it that got renamed The Nutritionist. So you, reader, listener, might be most familiar with it in its iteration as The Nutritionist. And because this is relevant, I do have to say we're reading an iteration of it that was published in 2014, because this is my favorite version of the poem personally, frankly, but it's changed and expanded and and done all of that many, many times. And all of them are wonderful. This is just my personal favorite iteration. Wonderful. Miss Mags, before we get further into the episode, I have to ask because I didn't do any background research on this. Does Andrea Gibson use they them pronouns? Yep. Okay. I wasn't sure if this was the same poet, but thank you for clarifying that. Okay. (laughs) So why don't you give me some context for this poem? You've said that it's had many, many different iterations, and I know that it's one of your favorites, but why is it one of your favorites? How did you first discover it? I first discovered Andrea Gibson's work probably in like 2010, I think, 11 years ago on Tumblr through their poem called Jellyfish and just kind of really dove deep into their into their backlist, so to speak, and found the madness face. And this is a really difficult poem. It's really sad. It has a hopeful ending, I think, ultimately, but it really deals with intense mental health issues, trigger warnings for suicide mention. And it just was the comfort that I needed in a really dark time in my life, I guess. When I found it, I was going through undiagnosed mental issues, which were really intense. I'm pretty sure I was, you know, just intensely depressed, but technically undiagnosed. And I've really been struggling, as Harmony knows, with PTSD for the last eight years. And I just find that whenever I'm having a really hard time mentally, I come back to this poem and it's really comforting because it's it's sad. Yeah. But there's also a real sense of, I don't know, commiseration almost. When you're going through a really bad time, there are so many people that'll just toss ideas out there at you. Oh, well, why don't you just do this? And you'll feel better. And why don't you just do this? And so for me, this is just like an incredibly comforting poem, as much as it is also very, very sad. It just really, I think, also spoke to a queer experience that I super identified with growing up. And I find that I need this poem a little bit less now. I'm in a I'm in a better place mentally. I, I struggle less with my post-traumatic stress disorder. But yeah, I don't know. It's just one of those things that's always really, really spoken to me. The line, no one wants to hear you cry about the grief inside your bones, really, I think encapsulated so many things that I felt and contended with in high school and where it just felt like I had no one to talk to. I didn't know what my outlet was supposed to be, you know? And then I got into poetry, funnily enough, myself at the end of high school, did it all throughout college. And that for me, it just really worked. It was a great method of self-expression 
fiction at a time when I needed it most. I write a le lot less poetry now, but I think it's partially because I need to write less poetry. There are less things in me that need to be expressed in that manner. I have other outlets for them. So because of all of this, there's just so much of this poem that to me is just a healing balm to the soul as much as it's also very sad. That's very fair. This poem was very uncomfortable for me to read, I think for those same reasons, because I tend to naturally be one of those idea throwers. And that comes from a place where I have dealt with a lot of trauma and a lot of the people in my immediate family have dealt with a lot of trauma as well and actually have diagnosed PTSD. I'm like one of the only people in my direct family on one side that doesn't have diagnosable PTSD. But our solution to that has always been to try and like run away from the darkness or I know personally I feel emotions very very strongly so I can not that I've never dealt with depression before but I can feel something very strongly and then put it away right after and so this poem really forces you to sit with that and with that feeling a little bit and I don't know it's a hopeful poem but it's a very uncomfortable experience and I wonder some listeners probably feel similarly while reading it. I agree I agree and I think that I think that what this poem plays with, and this might be getting too far ahead of ourselves, but I think that something that this poem plays with, though, is that it's not just well-meaning people in your life that throw things at you, but it's, in many ways, experts, so to speak. This poem talks about a psychotherapist and talks about their psychiatrist, and even that doesn't necessarily work for the speaker of this poem. Because even though it's all well-intentioned, it's not what the speaker needs. And I feel like, for me, that's something that I really identify with. As much as my problems when I was younger were undiagnosed, diagnosed my PTSD is diagnosed and this is something I struggled with for a really long time was that even the professionals I turned to it was like okay you have this problem now and I'm sitting there like okay how do I fix it how do I cope how do I make this better you're the doctor so to speak for a really really long time nothing that was supposed to work for other people quote unquote worked for me. So I think that that was also part of this for me was this idea of individualized care almost that really spoke to me too, because it's not just some of the wackier ideas, the nutritionist with the root vegetables at the beginning, but it also comes down to people who are supposed to have the answers who don't necessarily have the answers for you. And that's going to happen sometimes. That's very fair. That reminds me of a line in this poem that I want to come back to in just a second, because I'm a little bit curious about some of the context for this poem. It's mentioned in here, one of the, the themes that keeps coming back, Tyler Clementy is mentioned in here. And Tyler Clementy was a young man who was, I, I did the Wikipedia of him. He went to Rutgers University, which is actually where I go now. And he was bullied on Twitter by his roommate who filmed him non-consensually kissing another man. And he ended up committing suicide after that in 2010 at the age of 18. And is this poem, to your knowledge, a response to Tyler Clementy or... Yeah. Yeah, I think it is a direct response to Tyler Clementi. I think it was initially written in 2010, right around when he unfortunately passed away. And it was, from what I know, really just a response to this idea of the pain that you can carry, you know, and about being in or out. Even this, The poem even makes a funny joke about being in the closet and things like that. And how everyone has this really individualized grief inside your bones. But just because it's individualized doesn't mean that... It's not also shared, I think, across a variety of people. And I think it's also really important here to note, just like as a contextual thing, you know, being gay, being queer, being part of the LGBT community has for so long been associated with mental health and mental health stigma. Firstly, because, you know, it was wrongly diagnosed so many decades ago as being mental disorders in and of themselves instead of just, just a way to identify. But then also, I think there is 
a stereotype about the fact that if you're LGBT, you are depressed or things like that. And really, it's about societal stigma and not feeling accepted and loved in your communities and safe in your communities. That's actually, in many cases, the purveyor of a lot of mental distress for people. And I think that this poem also really gets at that, you know? Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think that that's a running theme. Do you want to dive in? Yeah, maybe we should read it and go from there. The nutritionist said I should eat root vegetables. Said if I could get down 13 turnips each day, I would be grounded, rooted. Said my head would not keep flying away to where the darkness lives. The psychic told me my heart carries too much weight, said for $20 she'd tell me what to do. I handed her the 20 and she said, stop worrying, darling, you'll find a good man soon. The first psychotherapist said I should spend three hours a day sitting in a dark closet with my eyes closed and my ears plugged. I tried it once but couldn't stop thinking about how gay it was to be sitting in the closet. The yogi told me to stretch everything but the truth, said focus on the out-breath, said everyone finds happiness if they can care more about what they can give than what they get. The pharmacist said Klonopin, Lamictal, Lithium, Xanax. The doctor said an antipsychotic might help me forget what the trauma said. The trauma said, don't write this poem. Nobody wants to hear you cry about the grief inside your bones. But my bones said, Tyler Clementi dove into the Hudson River convinced he was entirely alone. My bones said, write the poem. To the lamplight considering the riverbed, to the chandelier of your faith hanging by a thread, to every day you cannot get out of bed, to the bullseye of your wrist, to anyone who has ever wanted to die. I've been told sometimes that the most healing thing we can do is remind ourselves over and over and over other people feel this too. The tomorrow that has come and gone and it has not gotten better. When you are half finished writing that letter to your mother that says, I swear to God I tried, but when I thought I hit the bottom, it started hitting back. There is no bruise like the bruised loneliness kicks into your spine. So let me tell you, I know there are days it looks like the whole world is dancing in the streets while you break down like the doors of their looted buildings. You are not alone in wondering who will be convicted of the crime of insisting you keep loading your grief into the chamber of your shame. You are not weak just because your heart feels so heavy. I have never met a heavy heart that wasn't a phone booth with a red cape inside. Some people will never understand the kind of superpower it takes for some people to just walk outside some days. I know my smile can look like the gutter of a falling house, but my hands are always holding tight to the ripcord of believing a life can be rich like the soil, can make food of decay, can turn wound into highway. Pick me up in a truck with a bumper sticker that says, it is no measure of good health to be well-adjusted to a sick society. I have never trusted anyone with the pulled back bow of my spine the way I trusted ones who come undone at the throat, screaming for their pulses to find the fight to pound. Four nights before Tyler Clementi jumped from the George Washington Bridge, I was sitting in a hotel room in my own town, calculating exactly what I had to swallow to keep down a bottle of sleeping pills. What I know about living is the pain is never just ours. Every time I hurt, I know the wound is an echo, so I keep listening for the moment the grief becomes a window. When I can see what I couldn't see before through the glass of my most battered dream. I watched a dandelion lose its mind in the wind, and when it did, it scattered a thousand seeds. So the next time I tell you how easily I come out of my skin, don't try to put me back in. Just say, here we are, together at the window, aching for it to all get better, but knowing there's a chance our hearts may have only just skinned their knees, knowing there's a chance the worst day might still be coming. Let me say right now, for the record, I'm still going to be here asking this world to dance, even if it keeps stepping on my holy feet. You, you stay here with me, okay? You stay here with me. Raising your bite against the bitter dark, your bright longing, your brilliant fists of lost. 
friend, if the only good thing we have to gain in staying is each other, my God, that is plenty. My God, that is enough. My God, that is so, so much for the light to give each of us at each other's backs, whispering over and over and over, live, live, live. I love this poem (laughs) so deeply. I don't know if that came across, but... It definitely did. I also know that you love this poem. It's a beautiful poem. It's just... oh. It hurts. I mean, I guess for other, for different people, it might be different things. But for me, it's like, oh, God. Oh, God. But it's so hopeful. So one of the things that you mentioned earlier, and I forget what the context was, but there is a line in there that talks about normal in a sick society or something like that. Let's see. It's no measure of good health to be well adjusted to a sick society. That really kind of summed this poem up to me. And you were talking about what you were talking about is this idea of individualized healthcare, right? How we're people who who need different things and not one thing is going to work for all of us. One of the threads throughout is this idea that simply speaking our truth and simply letting people know that they aren't alone simply because other people also have these feelings can be powerful and can be enough and can save somebody's life sometimes. But then this idea of because this is a poem in part about sexuality and this idea of being well adjusted in a society who sometimes hates you, right, was really powerful for me, I think, in terms of what I at least personally have been feeling this year. You know, it's 2021 now that we're recording this. And I don't know when this is coming up. It's probably months after January. But 2020 was hard and everyone was dealing with a lot, but it's like okay for us to not be okay in a world that is just so clearly unfair. Yeah, and also it's okay for you to not meet the expectations of what that world looks like because it's not you who is the problem and it's important to recognize that. And I think that the idea you were talking about about speaking one's truth is really important here because I think this poem ends with this idea of solidarity being the key, right? It's on an individual level in the poem. The speaker is talking to a friend and, you know, saying that even if it's just the two of us against this world, it is enough that we're together. But I think it speaks to that larger idea of solidarity and creating community and that giving people a safe place to land can be enough, you know? It's not a fix, but it's enough to start healing things and it's enough to start moving forward and it's enough to see the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. And I think for me, that's ultimately what makes this poem so, so powerful is the fact that when you feel like you're able to put yourself out there and use your voice, sometimes you can find these communities where it's a safe place to land and it can be worth taking the risk, you know, to find that light in this really sick world, as the poem says. Yeah, and I think part of, I don't know what it was like for you, right? Because everyone has a different individual experience with depression. And even though not all of us may be chronic depressive people, I think it's safe to say that almost everyone in the world has experienced a bout of grief in their lives. I know for me personally, when I've been in that darkness, it feels so potent because it feels so isolating, right? You're the only one in the world who has to deal with this situation. And I say that as though, you know, it's like this selfish sort of thing, but it's not because you are, you you haven't talked about it with anyone for the most part, usually. And like, nothing does make you feel better. It's just kind of something that lasts and lasts until it doesn't anymore. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that ties really closely into the beginning of the poem, 
where they're talking about the nutritionist, the psychic, the, the psychotherapist, the yogi, the pharmacist, the doctor. And something that I think is really interesting is that the speaker is talking to all of these professionals, right? But every single option that's offered is like an individual thing, right? No one's saying, go find your community, go find your people, go find what makes you feel okay. It's to the point where what one person like recommends isolation to the highest point, going back in the closet. And Gibson makes a really funny joke about that. But there's this individualized healthcare to that extent needs to also include finding community. And not finding a man to fix things, you know, as the psychic said, which I think implies both a misgendering of Andrea Gibson, but also is just so heteronormative <laughs> in so many ways. But actually, what helps is that sharing, you know, it's not about isolation. It's not about fixing things for yourself, which I think is in a lot of ways, like the American way, you, you just kind of keep things to yourself, and either it gets better, or it doesn't. We're raised in a way in which community is devalued, I think a lot of times, but community is, it, it can be what you need. Yeah, no, exactly. And there's something powerful simply about speaking up. I think it was about four years ago when we had the Me Too movement. And it doesn't feel as potent now because it's become like such a, a big thing. And, and twisted in so many different ways. But when it came out, it was beautiful. And I do remember crying. And I remember what it felt like to see so many people, even though it's a social media thing, right? Even so, to see so many people speak out. And some people who I thought never would, people in my life who I never, I felt like it was brave almost. Where I could never see speaking out about that that trauma. And, and a lot of it, you didn't even have to speak out, right? You just had to like acknowledge this is a thing that I went through, right? You don't have to give the details, but you're not alone. I'm here too. I experienced this also. I think it so ties back to the poem when the trauma starts to speak and the trauma tries to silence you. The trauma tries to tell you that people don't care. You know, nobody wants to hear you cry about this thing that is so, that feels so deeply ingrained into who you are and who your identity. But actually, when you're able to take that step forward, that's when you get to start silencing the trauma to a certain extent, you know? And I think it's also important to note, right, it is, it can be really brave to make that choice. And you shouldn't do it if you don't feel ready. You should never feel forced to share by any means. But I think the point more is that what you should try and find is people in this world who are good and who you can trust with those deeper parts of yourself. That's it. That's enough. That's all you need. You don't need to be the person who writes these poems and streams it out to the world that you aren't alone. There's going to be people who are ready for that. And if you're not, it's okay. You just need somebody to stand back to back with you. And it's possible to find that person as much as society and the trauma tries to tell you it's not. I mean, it sounds like from what you were talking about earlier in your experience with this poem, like this poem when you needed it was there. This poem acted as that person for you because it was simply letting you know that your feelings didn't exist in a bubble. Yeah, I don't know. It just felt really like it was tailor-made for me almost. And it's not even because Gibson and I have similar life experiences or are, you know, talking about the same things even within like the realm of queerness but there was just something so tangibly it was like a relief 
to hear somebody say that the trauma talks and the trauma is trying to silence you. That to me was just a revelation to have somebody else be like, yeah, I know what it feels like, you know, when you were almost your own worst enemy in that way, because the trauma is part of you now and it takes on your voice and your mantle. That for me was such a revolution and such a turning point to be like, I can be kinder to myself and it'll be okay because the parts of me that are feeling so down and so mean and exacerbating this problem where I'm living in this mental bubble are being fueled by this trauma, which at one point was unidentified and largely hormonal, I think personally. And then later in my life wasn't, was based off very real experiences that were traumatic in regards to mass shootings and things like that. And that really just gave me a lifeline to cling on to, to say that there's somebody who understands what feels very niche about what's going on in your head right now. That's fair. I don't think this is necessarily addressed in the poem either, but it kind of reminds me a little bit about our conversation earlier in the season about Carmen Maria Machado's work too, about giving language. And I know personally, one of the things that I try to, I recommend it to my friends and it never works because most people, I guess, don't maybe operate this way. But one of the things I do when I have big feelings is what I call them or like something I can't control has always been to write it down and try to get language in some fashion to whatever it is I'm feeling. And just being able to like identify has always felt very healing for me, right? Because then I know, then at least I know that I can't be alone because there is language for what it is. There is, I think, a lot of power in being able to articulate the things inside you that don't feel so nice. I think there's a lot of power in that. And, you know, I do think that the poem does talk about that a little bit because it's not just the write the poems line. It also talks about writing that half-finished letter to your mother talking about, you know, you thought you hit rock bottom and then rock bottom starts hitting back. Or the fact that the heart is like a phone booth with a red cape inside, just waiting for somebody to go in so that you can start this conversing, so that you can start putting language to things. There is, I think, so much power in that. Because even if you only ever do it for yourself, in that way, then you can become your own ally until you can find your community, until you can find your safe landing space. Because when you start giving language to things, it's easier to see, or at least in my experience, it is. It's easier to see what you think and what you feel because you actually think those things versus what you think and what you feel because like your demons are sitting there just whispering them into your head. And when you have language to articulate between those two things... For me, at least, that was a big point to be able to start moving forward in a, in a healthier way. And it was a really long process. And it's still not over. I still struggle really badly with my PTSD sometimes. It's not like it's one and done, but it's it's coping mechanisms, you know? It's coping mechanisms until you can find that place where you can start to unpack stuff super meaningfully. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. This was an amazing poem. Do you want to talk about the sexuality aspect? I feel like we haven't talked enough about the fact that this is a response to somebody who experienced extreme homophobia in some fashion, right? Because they were shamed for their sexuality and how Gibson is relating to that. And I don't know if this is a poem about their gender identity necessarily or their sexuality, but it it seems to be related to queerness in general. And I guess, too, that's something I feel kind of divorced from in terms of describing the specific oppression, I guess, that relates to queerness and how that can relate to trauma and feelings of depression, essentially. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really big part of this poem. And I, I do think to a certain extent, it, it wraps back around to what we were talking about earlier with the line about about the bumper sticker and the sick world. You know? Because I think that what a lot of this poem says is that society might not accept you and it's okay that that feels really fucking terrible. I have been there too. The really raw stanza where they say... 
four nights before Tyler Clemente jumped from the George Washington Bridge, I was sitting in a hotel room in my own town, calculating exactly what I had to swallow to keep a bottle of sleeping pills down. There is a real rawness in sharing that, but I think it also shows the fact that outside forces contribute to all of this in the forms of homophobia, in the forms of oppression, and that just can feed your inner demons, so to speak, and can keep you silent and can keep you feeling like you're the problem, because that's what culturally, societally, we want people to believe, is that you're outside of the norm and not that the norm is fucked up. Yeah, which is, oh, there was something that I was reading recently and I can't remember it. Uh, and I wish I, I wish I knew what it was, but it was something, it was something where somebody talked about, it might've been theory of some sort, how we convince people that have money specifically is a part of the norm or even like there are a ton of ton of think pieces right now going on about how millennials feel so much shame about their arrested development because the norm was supposed to be having a kid and getting a house and not necessarily in that order getting married (laughs) having a kid getting a house having a nice paying job moving out by the time you're 30 right but that isn't the norm that's just something that we're told and especially it isn't the norm right now and that is a feeling I guess I can relate to and I'm sure everyone can because we've all been othered in some fashion or another but this idea of there is only one way to exist and if you're outside of it then you're the thing that's wrong where in reality very few people actually exist within that one way yeah yeah absolutely and when you don't exist in that one way at the lowest points it feels like you personally can't sink any lower, but the world is still gonna try and fuck you up. That's really what I got off of that line about the letter from the mother, you know, with uh, I thought I hit bottom and then bottom started hitting back. I personally hit my lowest point and it still wasn't enough because these outside forces were still here to fuck me up. But I do think that there's a lot of moments of hope in this poem as well. And it's not necessarily just about the solidarity aspects too. There's also lines like, I watched a dandelion lose its mind in the wind. And when it did, it scattered a thousand seeds. You know, it's, it's like equating to a certain extent losing your mind, so to speak, which I think is how a lot of people can feel. It's how I felt a lot of the time when I was at my darkest and I was at my lowest. But as a way to spread broke, seeds are new beginnings. Seeds are new shoots. And there's these points where it's like things are going to feel really terrible and really awful and the world's going to feel against you and tear all of these seeds off of your body. But you just got to keep going because there will be new beginnings that come out of all of this, you know, as long as you persevere. And I think that that's to a certain extent can be like a real cliche, both in talking about mental health and about LGBTQ issues is that everyone's everyone always says, you know, just go just hold on, it's gonna get better, it's gonna get better. But then at the same time, I hope that's true. I want it to be true. I didn't believe that aspect of this poem for years. I mean, we're talking about like, I found this poem a decade ago. And for a long time, that so wasn't true for me. But now a decade later, it is. I have better coping mechanisms. I feel like I did plant these new seeds in the parts of myself that were at its lowest and felt the most unhinged. So I have weird feelings about that because on the one hand, I don't necessarily want to just like out platitudes, but on the other hand, there is something brave about just, you know, continuing to reiterate the fact that it will get better if you hang on. You are valued and and you should live and you should be here. I agree. I think that you can't guarantee betterness, right? Because sometimes the world is cruel and mean 
And I think to a certain extent, there is some sort of action that you have to take. You have to go out there and find your people. And maybe, you know, there's a lot of work that has to be done, I think, when it comes to things like self-esteem or any negative feeling. Like, there's a lot of work that has to be done in terms of processing one's feelings. But in my experience, I know it's always gotten better. And like, one of those things, I know for me, I've had dark points, but I've never really felt swallowed by the darkness as much as I have when I'm like going through a breakup, which might some people might dismiss but for me has always been very severe in terms of like this is the I have re- really decent coping mechanisms I feel like for for getting out of the darkness but for that it's very difficult for me and so whenever I have friends who are going through that that's really all I can tell them you have to remember that the sadness is temporary nothing can last forever and eventually you're going to have moments where things start to feel okay again and that might not last forever either right but it is temporary no one can exist in one state of being for forever that's not the way we as humans work and that's not the way the world works nothing is just stagnant it reminds me again of the dandelion it's almost the life cycle the idea of it gets better is really valiant but nothing is going to be better forever what you have to remember is is the cycle when your new seeds grow maybe things will be good for a little while and then they get bad again and then you'll lose your mind but if you're if you're the dandelion you just have to remember that that cycle is going to keep going you're going to shake your seeds you're going to get to start over again mentally and that's what you can hold on to exactly and no one's experience is universal and everyone has different experiences and then different coping mechanisms and then different things that might make them more susceptible to these feelings than other people but I know in my experience at least things have gotten better like I still cycle all the time I have 20 million feelings a day. But I know that I have better coping mechanisms than I did at least three years ago. And that helps and things do feel calmer than they did even three years ago. My lows don't feel quite as unmanageable now. And I think that that could be true for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, I really agree with that, that idea of the fact that things can get more manageable, that you learn from experiences will hopefully find healthy coping habits and and mechanisms that work for you. And that can make things feel less extreme as well. All right. Is there anything else you want to dig into with a nutritionist? No, I think I'm good. Is this a feminist poem? I think it could be. I think So I don't think it directly deals with feminism, but I think that the overall theme here, specifically dealing with solidarity and then also with otherness, is something that can really be applicable to feminism specifically, and really any any form of oppression, right? And I think it's a way of, I think this poem helps contribute to a more equitable world. And that is a part of feminism. So like, it can be I don't think that's necessarily the point of it. But I think that it could be a part of the feminist canon, and definitely can be used for feminist purposes. What about you? I agree. I don't think the point of this poem was to be feminist. But because it's pointing toward a more equitable world, it it can be used for that. I also think that the solidarity and not that it does this a ton, but it does poke a little bit at like heteronormativity as well, both in relationships and also in sexuality and gender identity. And I think that that's often really useful in feminist discourses as well. So while I wouldn't necessarily send this poem to somebody who was like, I really want to read a poem about feminism, I would send this poem to somebody who just wants to read a really good poem and is also a feminist or like, 
is thinking about oppression largely because I think that it deals with feminist themes, even though it's not necessarily the point of the poem to break down feminism, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Do you have homework? I think that my homework is going to come from a more personal lens this week, just because this this whole poem is so personal to me. And I think that it's going to be to get back into journaling as a way to sort of process my, my feelings and emotions, because as much as I don't necessarily need, and I do, I feel this genuinely, poetry in my life still serves a purpose, but it's not the end all be all of processing emotions. I still find that writing things down in a journaling factor is really good for me to find some equilibrium. And I've really fallen out of practice with it just because I've been stuck in my house and I usually journal not in my house. So I think that for my own sanity, it's it's time to figure out how to reintegrate that practice into my life because it's useful and it's one of my better coping mechanisms and I just haven't been using it because it doesn't fit into my routine anymore. So that's fair. I think my homework is similar and it's also something I put on as homework for forever and something that, you know, I just kind of continually have to chip away at. But as we discussed, in this episode, I think I'm really bad at sitting with dark emotions, especially when I have an equilibrium. And it's something that I've been trying to like, uh, other than journaling, because I am actually pretty good at that if I have an overwhelming emotion, but I would like to be able to sit with dark emotions more in my day to day, because I think that it has the potential to make me a better person and like help me reflect better on certain things that I do throughout my day to day. But I want to keep trying to do that and keep trying to do that in a healthy way. Because when I try in the past, I've always felt as though I am in danger of actually being swallowed up by the darkness. And that's not something I as a person can really handle. Well, So I need like maybe to develop some sort of meditation techniques or like do journalism in like a certain or not journalism journaling in like a certain space as a part of something else to maybe like really think about that and analyze that in a better way. That's not going to make me sit, sit with that too much. Kind of like therapy, except therapy for me hasn't really worked that well. I need to figure out something for myself that works better. I get you. I get you. I feel like I struggle similarly too, in the sense that when I reach that equilibrium, I'm always scared of rocking the boat, which means that then bigger things don't end up getting unpacked (laughs) ever for myself. And there are less, less lessons learned, I think for me at the very least. Whereas when I do force myself to really sit with some of the darker stuff. It's hard, but I feel like I I take more away from it in a positive manner ultimately. But it's difficult when you feel like doing it at all is going to swallow you entirely. It's it's really hard to find that balance. Yeah. And it's just something that, you know, we all have to work at and try and get better at because sometimes you're never going to reach the the true ideal because the ideal sometimes I think is just being happy all the time and that's impossible. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What are you reading? I'm reading White Ivy by Susie Yang, as well as Not Your Sidekick. I am reading Not Your Sidekick. I actually, I have a new book to add to this. So I started reading, I started audiobooking Gods of Jade and Shadow, which is a book Maggie has talked a little bit about and that I've been dying to do. I don't know how I feel about it so far because I'm comparing everything I read right now to the wonderful The Once and Future Witches by Alexi Harrow, which I am reading right now and it's great. But I feel like I have a potential to really enjoy Gods of Jade and Shadow as well because it's got my fantasy cup of tea, you know? All right. Okay, is that it all today, Miss Max? That is indeed all. Goodbye, Goose Season Goalies. We will talk to you next week. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC 
and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel dash girls dash book dash club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC pod on Instagram at rebel girls book club on Facebook at rebel girls book one on Twitter and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.